you're listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Where are we, Daniel? We are in Kanate, where we were last night. We're in, in the, the, sh- the Alps. No, in the Apennines. Well, the Dolomites are part of the Alps. No, the they're sorry, bri- they're bri- the Dolomites are a part of the Alps. So yes, we are in the oh. Alps, Richard. Um, and we are, Richard. If you just turn round. This doesn't really work on audio, um, but we will we will be filming a video here, which will hopefully capture some of this view. You can see or almost see La Marmolada, the highest mountain in the Dolomites, which I think I spoke about yesterday. I did in a video today, three thousand three hundred and forty-three meters. You're doing, you're doing your your best work on video these <laughs> days. <laughs> but the uh, um, the Dolomites are looking very majestic. They are glistening it? in the Lots snow. Lots of snow still up there. Oh, a hell of a lot of snow. Yep. Is that unusual for there to be it still is, so much it snow? It is. Um, and, um, you know, I've been speaking to well, the lady in our hotel, Francesca, whose wonderful introduction in Ladino we heard last night. She was talking about how well everything has been delayed this year, partly because of the pandemic. But it is a little bit of a funny period in this area because it's between the ski season and the summer season. Summer tourism is big in this region and there's a little bit of a lull um, before June often. I've never really noticed that before, I must say, when um, when I've been in this area on the Giro. There's always, it's always been a bit of a carnival atmosphere, not so much this year. We feel like we're the only people in town. Well, it should be said that the town itself is resplendent in pink. There's an awful lot of effort being uh, made. The stage starts here tomorrow, of course, and I suppose having the, the rest day here, because most of the teams are here, today makes it um, makes the footprint of the Giro that bit bigger and everywhere you look there's pink there are balloons there are banners everything you were saying as we drove down through the town Daniel that the Giro is better at this than the Tour de France in in terms of Tour de France you obviously get towns on fete and you get lots of decorations and so on but it almost looks a fit like official branding, and it, and I don't. Well, you don't well, think it we've is. We've said before, haven't we? The Giro has a stronger visual identity than the Tour de France, and um, for a variety of reasons. Mm, one of them is the colour pink, which we've spoken about um, at length in the past. Um, I think another one is just the care for aesthetics that the Giro has, and not not only the Giro, but people in Italy have in general. Oh, it's a shame Francois not here, isn't well, it? Well, it's. Uh, I think it is. It is definitely true. I mean, I was speaking to a colleague of ours, someone who works for RCS, um, who is, well, his job every day is to get the starts ready. And I was remarking on how beautiful the starts have been, extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, particularly the ones in Modena, Ravenna, Cittadella. And the Giro has taken the starts right into the central piazza, which I think, you know, we've already mentioned it in the podcast on this Giro that the tour possibly can't do for logistical reasons. But it can't be easy for the Giro either. You know, it, it, they have to get a lot of sort of ducks in a row in order to be able to do that but they do seem to and um, it, it reflects I think the care they have for the aesthetics and they have this brand this tag now the most beautiful or the hardest race in the most beautiful place and they do honor that I would have to say 
there's a lovely sort of feel to this place, even even if there aren't as many people as they might might have liked to have. How have you spent your rest day, Daniel? Well, I ran up, so we're looking at the Marmolada. I ran up the opposite side to the Paso Fedaia, the sort of B side of the Marmolada. I didn't write, run to the top. I ran to about 2,000. No, that's a long well, way. You need, you need crampons and ropes Yeah, up we're there. staying at about 1,600 metres. I st- um, above sea level, I ran to about 2,000, and it was beautiful up there, silent, and the weather was not as nice as it is now. I mean, now we've got beautiful, brilliant sunshine, and as I said, these the Dolomites are glistening like diamonds, but the weather is certainly, well, it was, even this morning, much better than yesterday. We're in quite a lively terrace bar, um, so if, if there's some music uh, leaking into yeah, this it's episode, be, I, I we get, do apologise. I'm getting sort of James Blunt vibes, not playing at the moment. There's bound, In the course of the next half an hour, there's bound to be some James Blunt, possibly, hopefully not, some Maroon 5 or something of that ilk. I think they'll... I think they'll pump it up for that as well um hope not hope you can hear us uh, perfectly well um but you've done done a laundry run as well today i have just seen Gianni savio and we've just seen Gianni savio out for his we were, stroll we were comparing notes on um how many steps we were doing um because Gianni likes to go out for his daily jogs and his walks and i said how many steps do you do and um Gianni's a bit of a free spirit when it comes to counting steps he doesn't count his he was asking me well how old i was now and i and, and then he, he he was quizzing me on whether I knew exactly when he was born, and I did. I got it in one, um, 1978. No, 1978. Wow. 1940. Wow. Wow. Well, that's 1948. Um, shall we go to our first question? This is our press conference episode, of course. We've got one of your questions tonight is, is going to be answered by James Knox, another one by Rob Hatch from the telly. But let's get to our first one. Now, this is Ewan Rennie. Hello, Richard Daniel. Ewan and Westlothian here, friend of the podcast. It's been touched on already in your coverage of the Giro after Caleb Ewan dropped out, clearly having no intention of ever finishing the race. But I see that Tim Merlier, who also dropped out, won the Ronde van Limburg on Monday, a week after dropping out of the Giro, supposedly with fatigue. I know it's something that's effectively been going on for years, but personally, it doesn't sit with me very well that he can enter what is effectively the second biggest race of the year and go on to do a relatively minor race instead. Do you think it'd make any difference if riders were prohibited from riding in other races after dropping out until at least the race they originally entered was finished? Just a thought. Thanks for your coverage, and keep up the good work. Thanks very much for that, Ewan. Lovely to hear the Scottish accent. Caleb Ewan dropping out. We talked a bit about that last week, and uh, yeah, Tim Merlier pulling out of the Giro, and then winning a race this week. It's not a great look, that, is it? Especially when he's claimed injury. No, and Ewan suggested there there should be a, some kind of rule that forbids this. Well, there is a rule. Uh, UCI regulations 2.6.026 reads, a rider dropping out of the race may not, this is stage races, may not compete in any other cycling events for the duration of the stage race that he abandoned on a pain of a 15-day suspension and a fine of 200 to 1,000 Swiss francs. After consulting the event directors and the president of the commissaire's panel, the UCI may, however, grant exceptions at the request of a rider and with the agreement of his sports director. This has happened before, um, and we can only assume that this is what what did happen in this case. There's no information given on you know, the conditions that need to be present for an exception exemption to be granted. Part of me thinks that there should be some sort of threshold in terms of when you drop out from the stage race. I, I can understand that if a guy you know, gets ill on the first day of a stage race or in the first three or four days and then almost three weeks later wants to compete again, then I 
you know, if it was up to me, I'd be more inclined to grant that exemption. But Tim Mollier, well, he rode up until, was it after the rest day, Rich? Yeah, Mollier dropped out on the last rest day, citing fatigue. I'm not sure if he did say it an injury, just fatigue. But, yeah. No, it's not. A no, and it's not. It's thing. not. And I can also, you know, imagine that a further extenuating circumstance might be if the race that they went on to compete in was of particular importance, particular prestige to the team in question, the rider in question. You know, n- not no disrespect to the Ronda van Limburg, but it's not. You know, it's not the World Championship Road Race or, or anything of that ilk. So I'm slightly, I'm slightly flummoxed by this, to be honest. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink, on rights that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast. Powered by Super Sapiens. Well, we're very proud to have Super Sapiens as our new title sponsor. Thank you to them. They're all about energy management for committed athletes. And we're going to hear from a committed athlete in a moment. Uh, Somebody who's entered the competition that we're running with Super Sapiens to win three months supply of Super Sapiens to help you achieve your cycling goal. You can still enter the competition. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com, then send us an audio clip explaining in less than a minute how and why you would use Super Sapiens to help you achieve your ambition in cycling. Um, And we've been receiving some really interesting ones, so thank you very much for those. Let's hear from the latest now. This is Mike Cabigon. Hi, Richard and Daniel. My name is Mike. I'm Canadian. My goals this year are endurance events, the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race probably being the most recognizable internationally. Super Sapiens matters to me because in these events, the key factors are usually pacing and fueling. For me, pacing by feel or perceived exertion has always worked well, but there is no perceived exertion for fueling. And if there is, mine is terrible. So a real-time glucose metric could lead to material versus a marginal improvement, for me anyway, and being able to attribute an underperformance to a lack of fuel where I otherwise would have pointed to a lack of fitness would also have an impact not only on how I race but also how I train going forward. So in any case, I love that this product now exists and I love that they're supporting the cycling podcast. Enjoy the rest of the Giro. On to the next question. Hello, this is Christopher Sunar, friend of the podcast, calling from Seattle, Washington in the USA. I have two questions. First, it occurred to me as I was racing our Giro last year that one of the few things we've not seen in a Grand Tour is a downhill time trial, or at least a time trial with a significant descending component, perhaps a major mountain climb and then descent. What do you think about this idea, and could we see it in the years to come, given the increasing awareness of descending as a racing skill? Second, with inclement weather increasingly affecting the key stages in the Giro, what do you think about pushing each Grand Tour back two to four weeks in order to potentially improve conditions? We could have a May-June Giro, a July-August Tour, and a September-October Vuelta, for example. Thank you very much. I appreciate all of your hard work in the Grand Tours and the rest of the year. Well, thanks for your two questions, uh, Christopher. Downhill time trial. Well, there was one in 1987, wasn't there, the Giro, Daniel, down the Poggio? Well, there was one. One could argue that there was one last year in Palermo. Which oh, is yeah, largely downhill. Right. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Going downhill was a big part of it. Made more dangerous by the wind, of course. 
What do we think of it as a concept? Is it something that should feature more? I mean, Christopher's right that descending has become a far more important component in a in a bike race. We didn't have pictures yesterday, but we understand that Bernal descended more cautiously than those behind him, and that might account for the the, the relatively small gap at the finish line. Just 27 seconds he finished ahead of Bardet, who's a pretty famously skillful descender. Um, it's definitely part of putting together a winning Grand Tour, isn't it? Well, it's always fraught with the question, the issue of danger. And I don't know if you remember, Rich, but in 2017, I, I must admit, I'd completely forgotten about this. Um, Pirelli, the tyre manufacturer, had teamed up with RTS, the organiser of the Giro, and they were going to introduce a best descender competition. That's and right. there, were, there were 10 descents that had been earmarked for this. There was prize money up for grabs, 5,000 euros was going to be offered for the winner, and it never happened because the Riders Association was opposed to it, and there was a lot of pressure exerted on Pirelli and RCS. And within a matter of days from the announcement, it was it was dropped. This isn't this wasn't the only time that there has been a, a prize for the best descender in a pro race in the, in Paris Nice in the sixties. Uh, Lucien Aymar, who won the Tour de France in nineteen sixty six, he was a great descender. Um, he told me a few years ago he remembered that one year in Paris Nice there was a prize for the descent of the of Montferrand above Toulon. And the prize was a pair of skis. There was a sponsor that was also a ski manufacturer. So it's not new. And then we've also had, for example, and Paolo Savardelli, two-time Giro winner. Um, he was noted. He was renowned as the best as the best descender in the peloton. In, I think it was 2006, Red Bull contacted him to take part in some kind of mountain time trial against Steve Pete, the mountain biker. Downhill mountain biking is is a very popular branch of that sport, and it's it's actually a fantastic spectator sport. But I guess the the difference there is that that developed in in, in sort of parallel with cross country mountain biking. It wasn't it wasn't added, and it's dangerous. But the riders are very well protected, very well padded, and so on. And I guess we were this cuts across our discussion last night, doesn't it, about how cycling professional cycling is perhaps becoming more risk averse and more I mean, society is becoming more risk yeah, averse yeah but it, it, it's it's sort of morphing from as you said an, an endurance sport into a performance sport while the downhill performance is a is a major part of winning a grand tour the organizer would perhaps be reluctant to recognize that skill to to be seen to be being encouraging the riders to take risks because if there was a competition for the fastest downhill or a downhill time trial and there was a terrible accident on it well the organizers would get a lot of flack for that well, wouldn't they? we saw the tour of poland last year didn't we that the tour of poland organizers had been trumpeting and boasting about the fact that they staged the fastest finish anywhere in the world tour anywhere in cycling in where was it katowice and what happened last year well dylan gronewagen had the well he, he caused a terrible crash and Fabio Jakobsen, well, he only came back to racing a couple of months ago, didn't he? And that was obviously, um, well, the, the, the blame for that, to a large extent, was put at the door of the Tour of Poland organiser. Daniel, Christopher's other question about inclement weather. This is something you were talking about only today, pushing the Grand Tours back two to three weeks. We know after last year that the Grand Tours 
can be moved. They're not set in stone. Would it make sense in particular for the Giro to be held a couple of weeks later? Yeah, I think so. And maybe this is one legacy of the pandemic. Last year, we saw what was possible at different, completely different times of the year. I mean, they weren't moved just a few weeks. The Vuelta was absolutely feasible and, you know, very watchable and enjoyable in October and November. So moving the Giro back, which incidentally, you know, it used to finish more towards the middle of June. Um, It's only been quite recently that it's been entirely in May. Um, To me, that it would make sense to move the Giro back and also move the, the Tour de France back. If you move the Tour de France one or two weeks it would still be in the middle of the summer holidays that's not an issue i don't really see any reason not to do that um, these are the only races in the season that are uh, in grave danger of losing losing stages losing mountains because of adverse weather because these are the only races really that go regularly above 2000 meters apart from the tour of switzerland which is it, in it, the middle of june interestingly being orfeinai with french school holidays this year's Tour de France actually the first week of the tour clashes with school terms schools don't go on holiday until a week into the tour which kind of defeats the point of the Tour de France being a holiday a holiday event the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport, our sponsor. Very grateful to them for their continuing support. And if you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25, SISCP25. And if you'd like to enter our competition to predict the winner of Sunday's stage, the time trial into Milan, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Also, a reminder that, oh, I should say for the the prize for correctly predicting the winner and being having your name pulled out the hat is an £80 bundle of science and sport goodies. We've had three winners so far, one more still to go. Um, I should say tomorrow at 10am, Stacey Snyder's mugs, cappuccino sets and gelato bowls, the second batch of these, go on sale, raising money for two good causes nominated by our listeners, the Masaka Cycling Club in Uganda and the Marina Romali Foundation. The first batch sold out in five minutes. I've no doubt the second batch will sell out equally quickly, but they go on at sale at 10 a.m. on Wednesday. That's 10 a.m. Eastern time in the U.S. Uh, go to thecyclingpodcast.com uh, to be clicked through to Stacy's Etsy site where you can purchase these wonderful items. We're also looking for a Peddler de Charme from this year. So if you've got any nominations for Peddler de Charme, George Bennett was a strong candidate for apparently um, riding back up the Zonkalan with Alfini, his teammate, we're not sure how much of the Zong clan he did ride up, so we're trying to get to the bottom of that. Try and speak to him tomorrow morning. Uh, shall we go to our next question? Uh, this one is from Toby Hopkins. Hello, Toby Hopkins here, friend of the podcast. I was listening to Kilometre Zero today and heard Daniel interviewing Matteo Fabro, asking him about Friuli. Matteo responded with astonishment. Don't you know I'm about to ride up the Zonkalan, he seemed to be saying. He responded with what seemed increasing incredulity as Daniel continued in his whimsical way to ask about uh, Friuli and uh, the people there. Well, I think Daniel got away with that interview. But I'm wondering if you, as journalists, have ever regretted any of the questions that you've asked to riders or others in the cycling world. Well, Daniel, I've regretted not asking questions of riders after the That's pretty much an everyday occurrence. That you always think of things that you should have asked. 
But have you ever regretted asking a question? I think it's more, much more common for me to regret the way in which I ask questions. And these things are often, they often hinge on, you know, the way you phrase questions, your body language. And there are certain people that are very attuned to, sensitive to the words Well, there's you one use. person in particular I'm thinking of who really? I've... Uh, I've managed to ask the wrong question in inverted yeah. commas on s- numerous occasions. You know who I'm thinking of? Um, I, I no, there are a few candidates. <laughs> there are, there are, really? Yeah, there are numerous oh, wow. candidates. But yeah, that is a common one. But in terms of actually regretting asking questions, yes, there have been some. I mean, one mistake. I mistake. I. I'm not even sure it was a mistake, but it was certainly taken badly. Pouring over, going back over doping scandals of the past. And when riders have admitted, you know, what they did, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, sometimes I kind of make the assumption that with it now out in the open, they're very willing to talk about it and also take ownership of and responsibility for what happened. And sometimes that's not the case. There have been staged, orchestrated, um, official, formal confessions, admissions, but which have not been followed by a, a sort of a cathartic, you know, willingness to talk about and to revisit whatever it was they said at the time. And I've I've done that a few times, particularly, you know, riders who did race in the late 90s who have gone on the record to say they did dope, they did use EPO. That hasn't necessarily meant that they've wanted to, as I say, dwell on it. And And sometimes I've been under that mistaken impression the the writer i'm thinking of is mark cavendish um yeah i mean i i've on many occasions managed oh, to I, I mean you uh, upset him i mean we all upset him yeah all the but ask the i don't think even ask the wrong question but ask the question the wrong way he's very attuned to looking for sort of landmines where there where there aren't necessarily any you know he he thinks he, a lot of times when i've interviewed him it seems to me he's been looking for the tripwire, even when I haven't actually placed a tripwire. Uh, uh, the, the best example of this, six in my mind, was Dusseldorf in 2017, Tour de France. He was riding that race, having been suffering from illness, and it was in doubt whether he would ride. And he was there, and he, he rode a decent time trial. I went to interview him as soon as he finished, and he was in really good form. He was really chipper. He was happy to be there. And over the course of a four-minute, three, three or four-minute interview, he went from being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed... That's the effect you have on people, Richard. <laughs> really annoyed and angry <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't really know how but you know like he, a bad speed date yeah, yeah really bad speed date he he just um he perceived a line you know a sort of line of questioning from me that, that just wasn't there you know the, the questions he hates are things like have you got a point to prove or do you think I, when he when it when it gets onto the topic of what others might think of him he gets quite yeah. uh, quite angry doesn't he yeah, que- not, it's not a question I regretted, but um, uh, maybe a year or so later, I was interviewing his, his then-team boss, Doug Ryder, and um, we did an interview, and then at the end of it, I threw in a question about Mark Cavendish's future, and Doug Ryder didn't, didn't like that question at all. It was, it, was a fair, it was a legitimate question, but didn't like it. Any others, Daniel? Any others in the Hall of Shame? Possibly most liable, most likely to upset people or give people that give riders in particular wrong impression is I think sometimes we're guilty of a matter of factness about what they've just done and what has just happened on the road sometimes they you know they've gone through five hours of or six hours of abject suffering 
and we're a bit like you know you were talking yesterday about how we always see the race through the prism of the leader and where is the leader at and for example yesterday one analysis of what EF education did would be that it failed because Egambo now still won the stage but if you look they eliminated Simon Yates from the from the race put Hugh Carthy on the podium yeah they eliminated and and you know they put Simon Yates at two minutes uh, and that was a huge win for them but it takes a little bit of reflection if I was asking Hugh Carthy or I was asking an EF rider after yesterday's stage I might have lapsed into that same as I say that kind of blase um, only seeing the race in terms of who's going to win it and, and how they're doing in relation to Bernal whereas actually yesterday was a big game for them and Charlie McGill is it's funny because we spoke to him after the microphone was off and he was quite relaxed but he did take a little exception a little bit to the question about whether it was a statement. I was meaning not for their team so much as for Hugh Carthy himself, who is still in the developing phase as a as a GC rider, even though he finished on the podium at the Vuelta. He's still in, in development, I would say. Uh, he's still it's still new for him to lead a team in a race like this. So that's kind of what I meant. But I could tell that Charlie Wigelis didn't really like that I, question. I, I suppose the other thing to say about the way we phrase questions and also body language and you know when we're interacting with these guys is we're always on a certain level, we're always or we should or we have to always think about the next interaction. You know, in a lot of cases, there, there, we need to speak to these riders on a regular basis. And, and which is not to say you should shy away from, you know, asking questions which they won't like, but you have to, and, and it's something we are very conscious of, that there's a subtle art of not upsetting people unnecessarily. I mean, sometimes you upset people for, for really banal things that, you know, they, the, the, the reader, the listener doesn't get any more from you annoying someone and it's just it turns on like I say you've chosen the wrong ad adjective you've chosen the wrong phraseology for a question and no one really wins then but as we have our go-to guys because there are people who are just better at giving interviews and more open and and less uh, and more straightforward and 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 I think the 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 beauty of the podcast is there are 180 odd riders in the race we, we we're not necessarily seeking out the the big stars all the time I've had a couple of very icky interviews with Mads Pedersen, for example. Before an interview with him at Pioneer, I was told Mads doesn't like being asked the same questions that he's been asked already. But I've not asked them previously, and I don't know what he's been asked previously, so it's very hard to know what questions uh, he I remember like. listening to that. When you saved that interview and the recording of that interview, I remember listening to it and I heard your question because I'd seen how he'd reacted to that precise question with other journalists. And I thought, About Matthew van der Poel? No, about no. sprinting. Oh, about sprinting, yeah. I yeah. knew what was coming. How weird. I knew what was coming. Well, I was, yeah. Um, he'd been asked a lot about Matthew van der Poel. He didn't like that. He didn't like being asked about being a sprinter. And so I'll just not interview Mads Pedersen again, and I hope I don't have to. And, and it'll be no great loss to me or the podcast. <laughs> Dan Walker from Canada. Much as I enjoy the extensive coverage of the finish line crowd, it would be interesting to know if the Inability to cover the race under extreme weather conditions is an inherent limitation of the existing technology. Thank you. Thanks for your question, Dan. And, well, we thought we'd uh, pass this one over to Rob Hatch, who's commentating, of course, for Eurosport GCN here at the Giro. He knows a lot, of, of course, about how uh, these races are, are covered and the limitations of the existing technology, as you put it. So here's Rob. Hello, everybody. I'm sure you're absolutely sick to the back teeth of my voice by this stage of the Giro d'Italia. So I will try to make this as quick as possible. Now, how do we put races on telly? 
TV companies have to buy the rights to show the race first. They do that by contacting an agency that sells them on behalf of the race organizer. So in this case, RCS Sport, who organized the Giro d'Italia. On the day of the race, a host broadcaster, usually a company based in the country where the race is held, films and produces the images. And with the help of the agency, they then distribute that signal to TV channels around the world. So to use an example at this Giro, Rai, the Italian national television, is the host broadcaster. They film it and Eurosport GCN buy the rights, receive the signal and we get the race pictures. The commentators then add our voices to what we see on the screen and it's sent to your televisions, tablets, computers and phones. That's the basic process. Now, how is it exactly filmed and transmitted? Well, we could be here all day, but here's a really brief summary. Depending on geography, race length, local laws and rules, the process can vary, but basic requirements are cameras that can travel with the race of a large distance, so 200 kilometres, for example, and you need motorbikes for that. You need to have a close view. You also need to have helicopters that give you a large view, things from the air. So we see groups splitting and the panorama, the countryside, things like that. There's fixed camera positions at the finish line for when the motorbikes are usually directed away for safety reasons. Now, the helicopters and the motorbikes also serve another purpose. And this is where things have gone wrong certainly in the last stage before the rest day. They transmit signals and they allow what's being recorded on the cameras on the bikes to reach the television director and the producers who are sitting at the finish line. They're in a truck at the finish line. They then cut it up and that tells us the whole story of the race on a TV broadcast. So using radio signals, the motorbikes transmit the pictures they record to the helicopters at at least one aeroplane that's usually flying in circles high above. They both then relay that signal back to that production truck at the finish line and the TV directors usually sat there seeing the pictures, turning them into a story and sending them out. Now, on occasions, the weather's too bad for the helicopters to fly safely. And on a very rare occasion, depending on what's happening with airspace, weather or the certification of the plane to operate in certain weather conditions at altitudes and things like that, that too can be grounded at the airport. And that's when we get issues with television pictures, as there's no real way to relay what's filmed on the motorbikes back to the TV production truck, as I just said, and to make it onto telly. Of course, to do that, they have to send it to satellite. But that's not exactly what's gone wrong in the last few days. There's been no problem with satellite connections or anything like that. With the advent of 4G mobile data transmission, switch your mobile phone on and you'll see, you know, 4G, so many bars of signal, things like that. Used to be 3G until a few years ago, didn't it? But the 4G technology is a lot faster and it allows data to be transmitted quicker. That's what the organizers try to do on the last stage. They try to use that 4G mobile data transmission to transmit the signals back to the truck and again, try to put the story together, even if we couldn't have helicopter shots and things like that. The problem, of course, in that instance is that you get a lack of 4G coverage in many areas where we have bike laces. So remote areas in the mountains, the signal, as we know, can be very patchy. Now, looking ahead to the future, the advent of 5G that's on its way could really revolutionize coverage and even cut costs. 
as you can imagine, producing a bike race for television is extremely expensive. It's much more than a football match, for example, where all the cameras are fixed. And in bike racing, if we could have 5G transmitting things data a lot quicker, then it may cut out the need on certain places for helicopters and planes and what have you. But unfortunately, those rules regarding flight, being able to take off, safety of planes are much more important and much bigger than the race organisers, the television companies. And, and I'm afraid that is what seems gone wrong in the last few days. hope that makes it a little clearer for you. I know it's not too easy to understand. And it's an extremely complicated business. Hi guys, uh, Nick here from London. My question is about the role of the general manager and to whom, if anyone, they are accountable. Um, because it occurred to me that you never seem to see a cycling team's general manager sacked, no matter how badly the team are performing. Unlike in football, there's no managerial merry-go-round. There's never any rumours about ma- uh, general managers' jobs being under pressure. After a port order France, there are never any calls to bring in a cycling big Sam to save the season at the Vuelta. And I wondered why that is. I think I'm right in saying that the general managers aren't the team owners, but nevertheless, many seem to have been in position for years or even decades. And most are completely synonymous with their teams, such that it's impossible to imagine, for example, Ineos without Brailsford or Quickstep without Lefebvre or EF without Vorters. In fact, when Dave Brailsford came under pressure after the Richard Freeman tribunal, it was stated that if he left, there would be no team. So my question is, how and to whom uh, are team general managers accountable? If they are at all, do they ever get sacked? And if not, why not? Thanks very much. Thanks for your question, Nick. The role of the general manager, to whom are they accountable? There is, there's no cycling equivalent of Big Sam coming in to save a team uh, facing relegation. There's no relegation. Um, so it's a good point. That it's a kind of historic thing in a way, isn't it? Because in the past, the... The, the general manager, which used to just be the director sportif, was also the guy who'd brought in the sponsor in a lot of well, cases. Well, that is the case. Still it, the case. Yeah, yeah, for most teams, what happens is there's a holding company, and um, what's called a holding company in the UCI regulations, and that, that is the team, that is all the fixed assets, not that teams in cycling have that many fixed assets, but the CEO of that, of that company is the guy who looks for sponsors, and then and the sponsors are really beholden to that CEO. And this, what the sponsors do is they write a check for a certain amount of money, and the CEO, the, the they write a check. Do you think still, or well, or maybe a bank um, transfer? Well, the, the CEO, PayPal. the owner of that holding company, is then at liberty in most cases to run the team as he sees fit. So he is, if you like, the monarch and the head of government. Understandably, he's not going to sack himself. That what has emerged over the last few years, well, there have been a few different structures in teams as cycling gets bigger and as the budgets get bigger and as it's maybe seen as a bit of a... It could potentially one day become a bit of a cash cow. There have been some slightly different structures emerge. Now, in some teams, there is more of a, a technical manager. Um, and we've seen this, for example, Oleg Tinkov in 2013. There was this merger with Bjarne Reese. Bjarne Reese was someone who always had a company recycling that where this this dynamic that I'm talking about that was in place um, he got money from a sponsor and then he ran the team as he saw fit but he was in a bit of trouble in 2013 Tinkoff came in as the sponsor recycling was still running the team but Tinkoff then decided that he was going to take over the team 
Um, so the owner of the team was no longer recycling and Bjarne Reese, it was Tinkov. But Bjarne Reese stayed on board as part of that deal as the technical manager. A short while later, Oleg Tinkov decided he wasn't happy with what Bjarne Reese was doing in that role and he did sack him. But that is rare. As I say, there are some teams now where there is more of a technical manager. I mean, Rod Ellingworth is to a certain extent that uh, in also has become that since his return. And Rolf Aldog has fulfilled that position for a couple of teams, I would say. But in the majority of cases, the sort of Ayatollah, the, the, the overlord, is the manager. And as I say, I mean, Turkeys aren't going to vote for Christmas. He's not going to... He, he, he's accountable to himself. And also, and also most of, well, all of the staff have contracts with him, not with the sponsor. I suppose you could... Um you could expand the question to taking DSs as well. And there's a very low, there's not a high turnover of DSs, really. I mean, you know, you look around and a lot of the teams have had the same DSs for many, many years. And they are the people charged with executing tactics on the road. I mean, they're, they're, Sunweb, now DSM, have gone through a few um, sports directors over the years. But, you know, Team Ineos, for example, Dario Cioni's been at that team from day one. Matteo Tosato's a a newer arrival there's uh, a bit of churn isn't there there's but a it little bit but it tends not. to be in so most most teams now have five or six directors to cover all of the races that they do and the churn tends to happen among director three four and five rather than director one two and three there was a bit of criticism a couple of years ago wasn't there for Jumbo Visma's sports directors here um but they're still still at large and uh their, their, their heads don't seem to be on the block in the same way as they are in football, certainly. And, I mean, I think the situation in football is pretty ridiculous. And, and I'm, I'm kind of glad that it, the same culture doesn't exist in cycling. Hi, guys. Uh, my name's Felix, and I come from Reading originally, which I mention because I've enjoyed all your callbacks this Giro. And I actually grew up around the corner from where Ayrton Senna used to live when he first moved to the UK. But at the moment, I'm in the middle of a brief uh, teaching gig in uh, Lombardy, in a small town between Bergamo and Milan. It's my first time in Italy, so I'm learning a lot or attempting to about the culture and history, etc. So all that stuff from the podcast has been amazing. Thank you. So I wanted to ask a question about this. Um, the first part is, where does cycling fit in within the sporting pyramid in Italy? I know from talking to my students and football is, of course, number one. But where does cycling sit compared to compared to other sports in popularity and exposure? And then as the Giro, of course, transcends this a little, uh, where does the Giro... Uh, sit within Italian culture in in the modern day. What kind of space does it does it occupy? I actually will will be in Milan next Sunday to help my friend get to the airport. So I might try and catch the time trial if I can to so maybe see you there. But otherwise, thanks for all the good work and ciao. Thanks for your question, Felix. I mean, you've spoken about this a lot, Daniel. But in a way, it mirrors what the Tour de France and that the fan base is, tends to be older. I don't know if that. Is, is identical in Italy. I think the first thing to say, Rich, and something I've actually been talking about with our, you know, when we've been in hotels and the people running the hotels is how, and I've spoken to you about this in the car as well, when we go into hotels, compared to 10 or 15 years ago, everyone would know the Giro was in town. And not only that, but they would know who was winning, who might win. This year, in particular, I've noticed that there's a vague awareness that the Giro is around, it's somewhere in the region, um, but not too much beyond that. And, uh, you know, 
why is that? Well, it's partly because there's no Italian really in contention to win and was never going to be any Italian in contention to win. I think it's the way the media landscape has evolved and now that everyone is sort of in silos and it's, it, everyone is less exposed to things they're not already interested in people can kind of can curate their media consumption in such a way that they maybe don't you know they don't see the two-minute bulletin on national news about the Giro d'Italia and therefore gain a little bit of awareness about it then you know they consume their news on YouTube or Facebook or whatever so I think that's um, their factors but as far as the the Italian sporting landscape. I mean, we often hear when we quote people like Dino Buzzati and people in the 50s and 60s, we hear that well, cycling was even bigger than football or if not, it was certainly second to football. I think there was a key moment in Italy um, in the, the sort of second place in the Italian sporting hierarchy. It's certainly the third place if you, if you, if you assume that football is number one, Formula One and Ferrari is number two, third place is pretty much always up for grabs. And in the 90s, when Marco Pantani came along, for whatever reason, people identified a good candidate for, for third place. One reason was that motorsport is huge in Italy. And in uh, motorbike racing, MotoGP, 500cc, 250cc, that was an incredibly lean period. The Italians really didn't win anything in the, or very little in the 90s in MotoGP. Now, Pantani, of course, won his Giro Tour Dublin in 1998. And then 1999, there was the, the fall from grace, the, the dramatic fall from grace. And that was exactly when Valentino Rossi appeared. And um, be between 2002 and 2009, six out of eight MotoGP world titles were won by Valentino Rossi. He was very charismatic. There were other Italians on the scene as well. And, and, and at the same time, cycling was being absolutely ravaged by doping scandals. You know, you think about that generation of Italian riders, Basso, Di Luca, Simoni, Garzelli, uh, Rebellin, Pantani, all of them, you know, in some form or another, and there were many more besides, that's just a few names. They were all somehow um, put under scrutiny or suspicion because of doping. Also at that time, 2000 to 2004, Michael Schumacher for Ferrari won five drivers championships in a row so what happened was i think motorsport took third place and then italy is in cycling terms has never really recovered partly because cycling has become much more global and um, italy is now a country like any other and um, there are still a lot of professionals there are still a lot of staff in teams but in terms of winning things they're really um you know they're no more successful well they're, they're less successful than slovenia um and and where cycling currently falls in the in the sort of panorama of interest reflects that i mean i i took a gazetta dello sport um, at random from last week and the first 31 pages were football five pages were the giro but this was the day before the white road stage a big stage and the giro is owned by rcs the, the company that publishes la gazetta one page was motorsport it was the middle of the week two pages basketball there's a there's a, a very good Italian player in the NBA at the moment, um, Danilo Gallinari. One page on athletics, one page on tennis, two pages on the European Swimming Championship. So cycling is very much in that rank and file of those sort of third tier sports. And which is not to say, you know, it can definitely take that third place again. But in order to do so, it's going to need a big star because Italian, I mean, I don't think this is particular to, to Italy. I mean, you, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Rich, but... Sports coverage is incredibly chauvinistic and, and patri patriotic. It hinges so much on, on what stars there are and how charismatic 
those stars are at any particular time in a particular sport? Well, we always tend to assume, I think, that it's only our country that's like that. But as soon as you expose yourself to other countries, you realise that every country yeah, exactly is the same. The same. And, and some are worse than others. And Italy is probably one of the worst offenders in that respect. There is a link between Valentino Rossi and this Giro, I discovered, when I spoke to Joe Dombrowski for tomorrow's Kilometre Zero. Uh, but all the stage winners are presented with a, a, a quite colourful helmet on the podium. And it's designed by the same uh, helmet designer as designs Valentino Rossi's helmets, I believe. You feel that here. I mean, there's an awful lot uh, resting on Ghana's broad shoulders, isn't there? There's a real sense that he a, a lot is invested in, in him. And it's, um, it's out of proportion with what he could achieve because mm. he's not going to win a Giro. I don't think he's going to win a Giro no. in Italia. No, he's got a charisma about him too that, you know, Cipollini was never going to win the Giro, but he was a huge star. So as long as you're the best in your field, I think you can become that vehicle for people. It's interesting what you say about, you know, silos. Um, on the one hand, if you're a cycling fan, there's never been a better time. There's so much information out there. There's so many ways to consume it. And I guess what we might, what we might be seeing is, uh, you know, more generally is fewer, more dedicated fans. You know, whereas when you go back to Buzzati and watch the, the pictures of from that time, the whole town was out. Everybody owned the Giro. It was something that everybody was involved with. The conversations that we used to have in hotels, I mean, I'm talking 10 years ago, not that long ago, but when we would be on the Giro, the conversations we would be having with hotel owners would be, how do you think, you know, De Luca's going to go tomorrow? How do you think so-and-so? What, you know, what about him? He, oh, he lost time yesterday. Now, again, small sample size, and this is a generalisation, but I have noticed it. It's more, ah, oh, yeah, I saw the Giro d'Italia is here. And where are they going today? Um, and beyond that, no one really has any speci specialist knowledge. And they're more likely to talk about a Pantani or someone who, you know, was racing 30 or 40 years ago and is no longer relevant. There's still that latent appetite there, though, I think, which um, is very different to the situation in the UK, for example, where... The popularity is almost entirely contingent on there being stars. Although maybe that's not the case anymore because there's a whole generation of cyclists that have grown up on the back of the success. And, and so there might be a, a more resilient culture yeah, forming I mean, in the UK. Yeah, and Italy hasn't had that surge in participation, partly because of things like traffic terrible dire roads in italy dire uh, you know in in the context of europe and compared to spain france they are awful and that certainly does not help i mean i say that ironically we're in one of the regions now where the, the roads are like carpet they're incredible but um yeah the participation has not had is not undergone the same explosion certainly that it that it did in the uk and it's it's seen it's still seen here as an old person sport Let's hear from uh, Leo Talbot, shall we? Hi, Daniel and Richard. Leo from Ireland here. The recent UCI changes regarding littering have probably made a positive effect, but one downside to it is it's actually highlighted how much littering the peloton actually does. And in some ways, it's actually depressing when you see the riders going through a litter zone, ejecting sweet wrappers all over the road and then chucking bidons into drainage ditches that point can't really see a volunteer wading through and getting every last bit of litter out of it. I saw an interesting point made by Dan Martin on an interview uh, saying that he doesn't throw away gel wrappers when he's training, so why would riders do it when they're racing? And there seems to be very little benefit, like they weigh next to nothing. You also see the peloton going through 
the last litter zone on a flat stage and you get half the peloton ejecting bottles when you could say possibly maybe only five or ten of them need to like minimize their weight that much it will be interesting to get some more riders input on this matter thanks thanks for your question leo well, we thought we'd put this one to james knox our audio diarist who rides for the current quick step he'll get to the question eventually before that we'll hear his update on his rest day rest day in kanazai not much to report on Got up, stayed in bed, had breakfast, went back to bed, had lunch, went back to bed, just had massage. So yeah, I haven't done much, didn't bother touching the bike. Um, maybe would have got a little roll around side if it was sunny like it is now, but until about 2 or 3 p.m. it was pretty wet and miserable and yeah, didn't fancy that. Even though I think quite a few teams have been out, even going up climbs in the rain, not sure what to make of it. I don't know if I should take my hat off to them or shake my head, but either way, yeah, different, uh, plenty of different attitudes, ideas what to do on a rest day but kind of feeling like my body needs a bit of rest and not from going to gain anything just jumping on the rollers just to hate my life as soon as I get on because yeah it's just not for me had a nice breakfast and, and lunch and things nice not to be scoffing pasta or rice or cereal or oats so that was nice just calm relax just eat what you feel like instead of feeling sick eating too much which you know becomes the case after this long in a race um, other than that, got Netflix on. Almost finished the Serpent. Taking me a long time. Telling plugs or sockets don't always fit my plug, so it's been it's been a while since I've had a hotel where I could fit my uh, UK adapter plug in there. I'm, I'm not sure what that's all about. Had one question in where a listener has asked why riders discard gel wrappers at all, given they weigh nothing. Is emptying your pockets a psychological thing? I don't know if that's like tongue in cheek or just simply hasn't seen the point, but it, it's just. Gel wrappers are pretty sticky and horrible. You wouldn't want to chuck a load of worms or a snail down your back of your pocket, would you? And put your hand in there, you know. Got plenty of food and different stuff in there. And it, actually, one thing is when your hands are cold, wet and freezing, it's hard enough to get stuff out of pockets, let alone sliding a gel wrapper back in and finding which one's got anything in it and which one hasn't. That all being said, these green zones seem to have been a huge success. And despite even I would complain about the logical way the UCI brings in rules, yeah, um, something did need to be done. Um, and creating these green zones, enforcing them, enforcing fines, even though I think the penalties on the riders are too strict. But having proper green zones, and if, well, I wish everyone could see it. If you're in the bunch, it's, it's, I mean, it's quite ridiculous, but it shows how much you're eating. But there's just, bomb. there's just a, a wave of wrappers flying everywhere. And I have been out the back enough to see... Uh, people by the side of the road collecting everything so yeah i think that's a huge success before in a race it was too easy if you were in like a in the final just to be on the limit rip a gel squid it in throw it out i did still try just to throw it even at bins or even at you know just throw a, wrap, a gel wrapper at a person but obviously that's i mean a bit ridiculous i'm not sure i'd be happy if i stood by the side of the road having a gel wrapper thrown at me but it's just not so nice putting sticky leaking gels back into your pocket when you've got to ride for five hours and they're all your pockets are sticking together and you're, you're trying to put your hands in your pockets and whatnot still don't think uh well they've tried to amend it haven't they they said like the last 50k but throwing bottles to spectators or giving bottles to spectators i don't even know where they stand don't know what to do with musettes anymore i don't know if we're allowed to apparently there's like an open zone is it like k after the you collect a musette or the feed zone where you can throw musettes but it's not clear the fines are frankly so ridiculous that no one really wants to give the uci, the UCI an extra 500 Swiss francs just for their end of table, uh, end of season coffer. So I end up still taking stuff back to the car or carrying stuff to the green zone for the time being. 
start the race tomorrow, heading down towards Trento, all the way down the valley. Pretty sure I know the whole start. Don't know the climbs, but the climbs look pretty tough. Could be a wet one, and it could be, yeah, it looks like it could be a breakaway. But yeah, the race is opening up pretty well. Fanal's obviously cementing his position for this second rest day now, uh, from where we were last time. I think he's got like 240 on Caruso. Caruso been maybe like the standout man so far. Came in as a domestic for Lander, and he's, he's, he's riding an incredible race. He's really, yeah, I've never, I'm not aware of him ever riding to, to such a high level, but yeah, he's always been a class act and always been there or thereabout. Carthy up to third now, which I'm obviously happy to see. Friend and Northerner, the two Northern lads, Carthy and Yates, both up there. <laughs> Myself, a little bit off the pace, but that's all right. Just a Northwest contingent, isn't it? Yates, Carthy, Christian and Knox. Uh, none of this. We all love Yorkshire and Yorkshire's the best and none of that. Uh, no Welsh riders, Northwest British riders. Hope I haven't missed anyone. Oh, Dowsett's gone home, hasn't he? There you go. Got rid of the Southerner. Um, and that's about it. Feeling fine today, obviously a bit tired. Pretty lethargic, but normal on these days. Kind of feel like I need to do something this last week, these last five days. Get up the road for my own head, but also, yeah, for the team, to be honest. It's been frustrating to not feel like I've been as good as I was in Ardennes and, and Bath, but still time to turn it round, put in one good ride, break away, whatever, and yeah, I come away happy, so focus on that. Thanks for that, James. Sounds like he's had a relaxing rest day, but it sounds like he needed that. Interesting to get his thoughts on the the, the littering question. I I... I I understand what you're saying. It's a bit like putting a, an old banana skin in your pocket. I mean, when I put the question to him, I paraphrased a little bit. And so <laughs> maybe that was an example of me regretting asking a question in a certain way because he didn't like the idea that it was uh, just a psychological thing. Um, empty gel wrappers aren't very nice to, to have. They are a bit sticky. And if you can throw them away, all the better, safely, of course, and knowing that they'll be picked up. I'm not sure everybody will agree with his assessment of the littering zones being a great success because one thing I've heard is that the convoy goes through immediately afterwards and blows a lot of the litter away. But the idea behind it, I think, is one we can applaud. Daniel, we should sign off because we've still got to record our... our we've got a few more questions to answer, but we'll do so in a in vlog format. Yes, we should, Rich. Um, just a last thing. I would like to get your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I didn't really interrogate you last night on... What you made of the canederli? We talked about them in the pod yesterday. These sort of dumplings, these um, with speck in them and um, and stale bread. They're made with very typical of this region, often served in broth. What did you think of them? It was lovely. Yeah. In fact, one of the questions we're going to answer in our in our vlog is about whether the the Giro may go to Hungary after all. And it felt like a sort of Hungarian dish in a way. Um, I, I was a, I'm a big fan of dumplings, and they were. <laughs> I don't want to use the word nice, but they were they were delicious. They were delicious, yeah. Nice mountain food. You know, we really are in the mountains here, and you want that kind of food that clings to your ribs, don't you? So dumplings and soup was absolutely perfect. Well, Rich, let's go and find a beautiful view of La Marmolada. Where are we going to eat tonight? Um, I'm not sure. We'll find somewhere here in Canate. I'm just reading. Um, you know, yesterday we mentioned, was it Alexander Robertson, one of the... One of the great Scottish One of the great, writers. you know, scribes. I like how you always reach for a Scottish chroniclers writer. Chroniclers of, um, of the Dolomites. I'm just reading another one. Hugh Merrick. Hugh Merrick wrote pretty much the first, I would call it one of the first guides to cycling in the Alps and the Dolomites. He wrote a book called The Great Motorways of the Alps. I think this was in the, this was in the sort of late 19th century. And um, he's talking about the Marmolada. The Marmolada, this is the view from just above the Pordoi, um, 
The, marmo the marmalada with her beautiful snow cap and pale blue glacier shield streaming valley woods. The only sizable sheet of ice in the Dolomites lifts into view in the east. We've got more or less that view now. Um, I had to close my eyes listening to that, Daniel, <laughs> to conjure it up. And then I opened my eyes, looked to my right, and there it is in all her splendor. What a what a beautiful sight! The and it is nice the to be in the mountains, isn't it? Poor old Chiro will be suffering here, but yes, he will. But it's lovely. It's lovely. Right, um, let's find our spot and uh, and then have dinner. That's important. We'll be back tomorrow night. Comment to zero tomorrow is called the stage winners, and it focuses on some of the surprise stage winners here at the Giro. Um, Comment to zero is supported by Super Sapiens, as is uh, our regular podcast. Thank you very much indeed to them, and thank you very much indeed to you, Daniel. Thank you, Rich. <laughs>